0: happy new year i'm jonathan capehart and this is a special episode of KPop. with their votes in the runoff elections on january 5th the people of georgia will not only determine who'll represent them in the senate they'll also determine the balance of power in the senate john ossoff and reverend Raphael warnock are the democrats hoping to unseat republican senators david Perdue and kelly leffler Late last year, Ossoff and Warnock were both guests on Cape Up, and in this episode, we'll reprise highlights from those conversations. Hear them talk about why they are running and the issues that would drive them in the Senate if they are successful in the runoff election right now. Why did you think that now is the time to run for office and run for U.S. Senate?
1: Well, my whole life has been about service. I, I'm a pastor. I serve at Ebenezer Baptist Church. But I've been engaged in these fights from that pulpit for years. I've been fighting for health care, access, and affordability for years, standing up in acts of civil disobedience, demanding that we expand Medicaid in this state. I've been fighting for voting rights. I've worked alongside my friend, Stacey Abrams. We've registered through the New Georgia Project, which I chaired. 400,000 new voters in the state, I've been standing up for the dignity of workers and their right to share in some of the prosperity that they've created. And I think my passion for these issues emerges from my life story. Someone who grew up in public housing down in Savannah, Georgia, one of 12 children. I'm number 11 and the first college graduate in my family. So my success is a result of hard work, but also Pell grants, low interest student loans, good public policy. I know the difference that good public policy makes. And that's why I'm running for the U.S. Senate.
0: And so in your campaign running around the state that hasn't voted for a Democrat for president since 92 and President-elect Joe Biden is on the cusp of perhaps winning the state of Georgia. Talk about one, why President elect Biden's message seemed to resonate in Georgia and what impact that has had on your race. And also talk about what you've heard on the campaign trail, because I can imagine you went all around the state. You didn't just stay in Atlanta <laughs> campaigning.
1: No, that's a good point. I've been moving all across the state. And you know that that's important, Jonathan, because there is this narrative in Georgia politics that there is Atlanta and then the rest of the state. And so I'm from Savannah, you know, southeast part of the state. But I've been on a bus moving across the state. I've dropped by small towns like America's Georgia and Cuthbert, Georgia, and down in Randolph County. And the people are surprised when I show up. And I'm surprised that they're surprised. But they say to me that they have not seen a candidate show up in their town, which is interesting to me because I'm running to represent the whole state, rural and urban, the North and the South. And I'm getting to see firsthand the concerns that people are having. And what are people concerned about? They're concerned about healthcare. They're concerned about the fact that they wanna make sure that they don't lose the coverage that they have, that coverage is affordable. We've had eight hospitals to close in this state, largely because we refuse refused to expand Medicaid. It's the unnecessary war that the Republican Party has waged against President Obama, who's no longer in office. And the people are the casualties in that war. Their hospitals are closing in these rural areas, devastating rural healthcare, and also taking away jobs. And so I think the people voted the other night when they voted for Joe Biden, and when David Perdue failed to get a majority of uh, his voters, even though he's the incumbent. And I finished ahead of Kelly Leffler even though she's the incumbent. The people are voting for unity over division and chaos. They're voting for health care. They're voting for a livable wage and the ability to retire uh, with dignity. They're voting for the best in the human uh, condition and the American spirit.
0: When you're out on the campaign trail, though, in those parts of Georgia that perhaps aren't hospitable to a Democratic candidate. What kind of response are you getting? What are you hearing from those voters?
1: I think people appreciate the fact that you're willing to talk to them. And that's my orientation. It's not a strategic political decision. Quite frankly, part of what running gives me an opportunity to do is to do what I would normally want to do anyway, and spend time with talking to people who don't see the world exactly the way I do. One of the things that disappointed me about the fact that we're living through this deadly and tragic pandemic, is that I had hoped earlier in the campaign to get across this state and drop into some of these Wednesday night Bible studies. I'm a pastor Mm -hmm. after all. And there are people who don't share my politics, but we read from the same book. And there must be some values. There must be some common ground. There must be a place where we can talk about the things that we actually agree on
0: stick with your parents for a moment because you brought it up and it's also in your introductory video about the fact that your mom picked tobacco and cotton and that, you know that's one of the things i love to say to people is to say to them you know i'm the first generation me and my cousins are the first generation in our family to not have to pick cotton it's sort of reminding people that you know our history isn't all that far in the past. And so for those who are listening who might not be able to really appreciate and comprehend what it means for you to be able to say that, my mom picked cotton and tobacco as a teenager. And you're saying that as not only the senior pastor at you know one of the most prestigious Black churches in the country, but as a candidate for U.S. Senate.
1: That's right. It's one of the most amazing and powerful things about this magnificent journey I'm on. My mother is 82 years old. My father's Mm -hmm. now deceased. And as a Black teenager growing up in the 1950s, she went to Center High School, but she spent her summers picking somebody else's tobacco and somebody else's cotton. And the other day, she got to help pick her youngest son to be the next United States Senator from the great state of Georgia. That says something amazing about the resilience of the human spirit, about the ways in which Black people have never given up on this country. We've been patriots, we've believed in America, we've hoped against hope. And it also says something about the promise of America. It's slipping away from too many people right now, which is why I'm running. But the fact that this kid who grew up one of 12 children, number 11, first college graduate, is a formidable candidate for the United States Senate, and indeed will be the next United States Senator, speaks volumes about this grand and noble and complicated experiment called America. I believe in it, I'm gonna stand up for it and try to be a good senator for all of Georgia.
0: These last four years with President Trump in the White House have been tough and rough for a whole host of reasons. For me, it's been tough because the country I thought I knew, with all its complications, was sort of turned upside down. A lot of things that people tried to ignore, particularly when it comes to systemic racism, our country's problematic and not-so-glorious past now in our faces. And I'm wondering from your perspective, but also I'm thinking about your mom, your 82-year-old mom. My mom's going to be 78 in a couple of weeks. And the things that they have seen, do those things play into your decision to jump into the political arena, to try to right wrongs? Bring me inside just what the last four years have meant for you and Did they play a role in pushing you from the pulpit into politics?
1: Yeah, I think our democracy goes through these cycles. It expands and it contracts. And sometimes when you have a history-making expansion, the election of the first Black president, there are demagogues who whip up fear and who appeal to the ugly underside of our complicated history and the democracy contracts. and We've been going through one painful set of contractions over the last four years. And so I thought it was incumbent upon me in this moment, uh, given all the work that I've tried to do for years, fighting for voting rights, criminal justice reform, the dignity of work, I thought it was incumbent upon me to do what I could do in this moment and to stand up and not to shrink from the responsibility to run for the Senate. The truth is I've been asked a few times to run for the Senate based on the work that I've been doing by ordinary folks who just see me doing this work and they're like, Rev, when are you gonna run? And that was never a foregone conclusion for me. The issue was, you know, for me, For me, voting rights is ministry because voting is your voice and your voice is the sanctity of your humanity. It's giving. So for me, voting rights and mobilizing voters, that's ministry. But in this moment, as people were calling on me to run here in this state, at one point I asked myself, who am I to say no? Given what my mom went through, given... You know, the stories that my dad used to tell me, my father was much older than my mom and he was a World War II veteran. And he told us the story of being fully dressed in his soldier's uniform and getting on a city bus and being asked to give his seat up to a young white teenager. There he was, donned in his uniform, prepared to defend the world, make the world safe for democracy, to stand up for human rights and human dignity, and in his uniform, asked to give up his seat. So when I think about that, the trajectory of our great quest to make this a more perfect union, if they endured that and didn't shrink, never became bitter, never gave up on the country, who am I to say no when citizens all across this state we're saying to me, we think you'd make a great senator. And so I'm deeply honored. And I look forward to the conversation about what moral leadership looks like in this moment.
0: You know, speaking of moral,
1: what's the right thing to do in that moment?
0: What do you say to the Georgia voter who likes what you're saying, but says, but you know, if he's elected, if Reverend Warnock is elected, that's one more vote for Chuck Schumer the Senate minority leader from New York. Will you be, to that person's mind, independent of the leadership in the Democratic Party?
1: Oh, there's no question that I will. I'm clear that I'm here to represent the people of Georgia. It's Kelly Leffler who has said over and over again that she's 100% Trump. Now, regardless of whether you like Trump or not, even if you voted for him, I want the people of Georgia to think about that. That you Here you have a sitting United States senator who says they're 100% with the president. I think that's a bizarre statement to make, no matter who the president is. You're there to represent the people of Georgia. Heck, what do you mean you're 100%? Every now and then, I have an argument with myself about what's the right position. She's 100% Trump. I'm 100% the people of Georgia. And in the places where that requires that I stand up and take a position other than the majority of my party, absolutely, I'll take that position.
2: We're waking people up to the significance of these races and to the unusual implications and consequences of these races. Because it's not just the already historic circumstance that you've got two Senate races in one state, and not just two Senate races in one state, but two Senate runoffs in one state. It's the extraordinary circumstance that the outcome here will determine control of the US Senate. And that means that whether or not the president elect and the vice president elect will have the capacity to enact an agenda, whether they will be able to appropriate the funds necessary to beat COVID-19 and to get economic relief directly to people. And a broader agenda, Student debt relief, raising the minimum wage, investments in clean energy, infrastructure and jobs, a new Civil Rights Act, a new Voting Rights Act. All of that depends upon victory here. We can have, for example, the two most productive years for civil rights and voting rights since 64-65 in the United States Congress, but only with victory in Georgia. And I think that Joe Biden's presence here helps us to clarify those national stakes, which are also the stakes for our state.
0: You, again, to not to keep harping on uh, this notion that Georgia and the South are backward in some way, but that must be my Northeastern, well, New Jersey, (laughs) my my New Jersey bias. But you are running, um, you're running as a progressive in Georgia. Um, How has that message been been received? Obviously, it's been received well, because you are in the runoff. Uh, But dispel this notion that um, the ideals that you are running on are somehow alien to the people of Georgia.
2: Look, the Republican Party strategy in the South since Nixon, the Southern strategy, has been about dividing Southerners along racial and cultural lines. Dog whistle politics, or in, in many cases, it's not so subtle. I mean, even when, for example, David Perdue, as he infamously did, took the stage at a Trump rally and used his precious time with that kind of platform to mock Kamala Harris' South Asian heritage. It's the same political tradition of racism and division. Now, what is the purpose of that strategy? It's to prevent the emergence of a multiracial coalition that recognizes that despite its diversity, It shares economic and health interests. And so when we talk about health, jobs, and justice in the American South, that's about mobilizing and inspiring that broad coalition that we need to win here. People who are facing financial precarity, economic marginalization, low-income families, white or black in the South, White and Black in the South share core economic interests. The kind of infrastructure and jobs program I'm talking about. Building new public health clinics and hospitals. Investment in infrastructure, jobs, clean energy production, rural broadband, upgrading schools and public facilities, transport and transportation. And yes, civil rights legislation, because there is a race and a class dynamic to the inequity in our criminal justice system. This is a program that will benefit people of all backgrounds in Georgia. And so to your question, to be very precise, Nathan, what, what I'm trying to do is speak to the daily needs of working people in Georgia. The working class in America is on this treadmill by design of financial precarity, low wage work, inadequate health care, so much stress, so much dependence on employers, and that's vulnerability. That's a lack of power. What we need to do is empower the people to come out and vote because they recognize that doing so will help them improve their daily lives, build wealth for themselves and their families, access education without debt, make a living wage, get the healthcare that they need—just the basics in life.
0: Well, speaking of you know coming out to vote, the. It seems like the the state of Georgia is doing everything possible to keep people from actually voting, closing down uh, polling places, trying to limit access to absentee ballots. Do you think that that is going to succeed or do those efforts only serve to gin up um, uh, voter uh, activism, voter participation?
2: It, It is that double edged sword where first of all, we have to recognize that Joe Biden winning Georgia is an outcome despite the apparatus of voter suppression. It does not represent the defeat of that GOP voter suppression strategy. Since Shelby County beholder in 2013, which eviscerated section four of the Voting Rights Act, the section that requires, as you well know, local and state jurisdictions to pre-clear changes to voting procedures with the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Since that Shelby County beholder decision, states like Georgia have passed more and more restrictive voting laws and you've seen the abuse of official authority to make it harder for black people to vote. You've seen these lines of six, eight, 10 hours because of the uh, under-resourcing of voting infrastructure. In majority black areas, you've seen the abuse of voter ID and signature match laws to disqualify uh, eligible naturalized US citizens from voting. The reason that David Perdue and Kelly Leffler are so furious that they have to justify their power in these runoffs is that they expected that that apparatus of voter suppression would keep the lid sealed on the pot. But the will of the people was so intense that had boiled over and forced them into runoffs. You talked
0: about the the, the boiling pot, um, but it seems like your your opponent, Senator Perdue, is trying to ignore that the pot is boiling. He didn't even show up for your last debate. Um, the last time he did show up for a debate, let's continue the cooking analogies, you roasted him to his face. Do you think, well one, is there another debate scheduled?
2: between now and the runoff? He doesn't want it. He tapped out. <laughs> he he doesn't want anymore. I'm ready to go, David, if you listen to Jonathan Capehart's podcast. Uh, and I, David, subscribe. And everyone needs to subscribe, by the way. Um, I mean, if we really want to extend the metaphor, right, it's it's the melting pot boiling over. We could we could, we could go uh, a long way here. Now, he doesn't want to debate. And yeah, he's trying to bunker down uh, and just... Um, Avoid answering questions. See, he, I mean, Purdue has a lot of problems. I, Purdue, Purdue, I don't think, has answered questions in, in local press in months and months and months. Purdue doesn't really go anywhere except Fox and right-wing radio. Purdue doesn't do public town halls. He doesn't, I don't think he really advises many of his events publicly. He refuses to debate because he's got these significant ethics issues uh, and questions that he just doesn't want to answer.
0: So, what? Um... President Trump is not happy. He's not happy with the governor. He's not happy with the Secretary of State because of uh, President-elect Joe Biden winning the state. Uh, President Trump, I guess, doesn't feel that those two that those two guys are not um, sufficiently loyal and delivering the state to uh, to him. And so I'm just wondering should his tweets be considered an in-kind contribution to you well,
2: I don't you know, I, get, I, I don't know what the impact on turnout will be of, of what the president is doing um, but it's certainly making it more difficult for these different factions within the GOP to align on on, on, on these races and, and focus on getting out the vote I think that what you're gonna see Jonathan over the next few months as the dust settles on on the presidential is more and more Republicans kind of willing to, to peek over the parapet and say, hey, you know, we just got crushed in a presidential reelect by the worst margin since Roosevelt beat Hoover in 32. So maybe this sort of um, total devotion to the Trump family is not a, a, a long term electoral strategy worth embracing. And and, and the the steel that's been in the spine of some Republican election officials here in Georgia, despite all this pressure, I think reflects the beginning of the erosion of the the, the grip that the Trumps have on the GOP. But I think that there's also a bigger picture here, which is that Trump's rise also gave rise to a new political movement in America. I mean, the, the, the renaissance in civic engagement that we've seen over the last four years. And, and a lot of it, the sort of the initial winds of that were, were felt around the time of my 2017 special election bid. Um, this just exponential growth in volunteerism, the, the explosion in grassroots political giving, folks chipping in three to five bucks as paychecks allow. Uh, all of the activism led by women the young people of color who have grown activism, voter registration, mobilization, advocacy for civil rights and criminal justice reform. This this coalition, this movement grew largely in opposition to Donald Trump. And our task now is to ensure that we continue to build on this momentum and that this movement is now re-energized and redirected toward more positive ends, not merely opposition but the enactment of a legislative agenda for the people that will help working people in this country. And these two Senate races in Georgia are the first test of how we continue to push forward as a team with this extraordinary movement that's blossomed over four years. And here in Georgia, it's about health, jobs, and justice. Uh, and, And so I am so excited to see what we can achieve over the next few years by taking all of the goodwill that's been harnessed and grown since Donald Trump was elected, all of that angst that was channeled into activism and civic engagement, let us put it to work winning elections and powering a legislative agenda that serves the, the daily needs of working people who have been neglected by America's political class for nearly half a century.
0: One of the big things is that in Georgia, particularly, there is a huge drop-off in turnout from the general election to, to the runoff by design. Given everything that you've seen on the campaign trail now, you're now on a, on a bus tour. How concerned are you that that drop-off in turnout um, will happen again and will result in you not not winning the Senate seat?
2: Well, there's never been a runoff like this in Georgia history. We, ha- we haven't had a federal runoff or a runoff for a federal race in Georgia since 2008. And the state has become younger and more diverse by the year. And there's been an unprecedented investment in political organizing in voter registration in volunteer recruitment and building a turnout infrastructure here since that it's not that i'm worried about a fall off in turnout and and those the takes about democratic voters falling off in runoffs or black voters falling off in runoffs you know those should go right into the into the dustbin those are those are those are tired and 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 not relevant what i'm worried about is simply mobilizing the most intense enthusiasm for voting in the the history of our state. That's why we're taking it across the state this week. That's why Reverend Warnock and I are both so focused on energizing people. I keep talking about creating that movement energy in Georgia. This doesn't feel and cannot feel like an ordinary election. This is the, 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 the most important legislative election in the history of our state with the highest stakes of any legislative races in the history of our state. And we have to excite people with a sense of opportunity about what's possible, how daily life can improve for working people in Georgia when we win.
0: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.